House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Sitting across the table, we've got Mr. John Copenhaver. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well, Al. How are you? I'm delicious. Oh, wow. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's been it's been an interesting uh, year already. Like I said, um, be back down recording with Sundance for a four part series and and got a Discovery Channel option. So I've been I've been doing well actually. That's amazing. I am so pleased to hear it. I think that's super cool. So am I. It's what I didn't expect. So you know, take it as it comes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, so now we've got a great great guest again uh, today. Tonight, um, his uh, new novel, Child Zero, will be coming out here shortly. And we've got Mr. Chris Holm. Thank you for being here, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Wow. This is quite the uh, the novel here. Uh, very, very fitting to our time. Um, I, I, I was sort of surprised when I got it at first. And then um, what, what, now you, what brought you to write this story? Like, this was not meant uh, to coincide with COVID, was it? No, very much not. Uh, in fact, uh, I began writing Child Zero uh, in uh, 2016, right after my last book came out, which was the second in my Hendrix series, Red Right Hand. Um, and in fact, I had been kicking around ideas uh, for, for what I wanted to tackle next uh, with my agent, who's a terrific collaborator. Uh, and I, I kept throwing ideas at him. And he's like, yeah, that's interesting. That's, you know, I had I had a, a sort of a escape novel, uh, you know, that I wanted to write that was going to take place on a, on a Rikers Island type uh, uh, jail facility. Uh, and he was like, yeah, you know, that, that could be interesting. And I, I pitched a couple other things. Uh, and then I said, you know, but what I really love, and unfortunately, I have no idea how to write, uh, is a thriller that takes place in a post-antibiotic world. And there was this long pause on the phone uh, and my agent, David said, uh, tell, me, tell me more about that. What does that mean? Uh, and it was really from that genesis uh, that Child Zero came. My background uh, outside of writing, uh, I spent uh, about 15 years uh, making my living as a molecular biologist. So I have a fairly strong handle on the science, but um, I really, where, where I struggled uh, in conceptualizing Child Zero was I didn't want to write something that was, that was dry and scientific. I wanted to write, uh, you know, a, a pedal to the metal uh, action thriller that, that maybe illuminated for an audience that didn't understand what a post-antibiotic uh, world might look like, uh, just what a terrifying new normal that could be. Uh, so that was my, that was my uh, initial spark for this book. Uh, and because it's so research heavy, it took it took the better part of, of, you know, four or five years for me to get a draft that I was happy with, uh, a draft that I my, my first draft of the novel was finished uh, in early January of 2020. Uh, and if you recall, early January of 2020 is when COVID exploded from a few cases in, in Wuhan uh, to uh well, the beginnings of, of what we're still dealing with right now. Uh, so I had no I had no thought of releasing a pandemic novel 
during a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> so it'll be curious to see how that goes. Well, yeah, because um, I'm not sure how, how you would handle this in your book, but, uh, you know, the, the way the world has reacted to this uh, COVID has been, um, I think, somewhat unexpected by several people. You know, the whole, um, con- you know, major conspiracies, of, you know, and that it's fake or it's made up or it was planned. And, and there's all of these things going around the world. And then you've got the, the rallies and the anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers and stuff. So with all of that going on and taking so much attention, I, yeah, I don't know. Does that worry you any? So it doesn't, it doesn't. I think there, there are a couple of ways to look at that. I mean, if you recall early on in the pandemic, uh, when we were all, I mean, completely scared out of our wits about going outside and we were sanitizing our groceries, the number one movie on most streaming platforms was Contagion, the Steven Soderbergh film. Uh, so it's, it's fascinating to me, uh, that I think, I think there is an appetite for a uh, pandemic fiction of a sort. Uh, and I also think uh, that where I perhaps, I, I should say that the bones of the novel were, were 100% there before COVID hit. I changed very, very little uh, to, to address maybe the way that things unfolded slightly differently than I would have envisioned uh, due to the COVID. Uh, pandemic. Um, but now, now my writing doesn't look as much like uh, prognostication as it does perhaps a reflection of, of, of the reality that, that we would see in a, in a, in a pandemic uh, environment. Uh, so I, I felt pretty good about my predictions. I think where I'm going to take a ding is I no longer look like I'm some sort of brilliant futurist predicting these things, but where I might uh, uh, gain a little uh, credit uh, is in the accuracy of of my prediction. Very little needed changing. And I think, you know, I think it's important to note this isn't a COVID novel. It's actually uh, not about a a virus per se, although a virus does does play a role in it. Uh, It really is about something much bigger uh, that that the the scientific community has been clamoring about for for the better part of a decade now, but that has really not gotten its hooks into the public consciousness. And so for me, uh, the the real the the real uh, goal is to maybe uh, change some hearts and minds and make people realize, wow, uh, these threats of a post antibiotic era um, are are legitimate and and very very frightening. Yeah, I actually remember. I've, I've I've heard that enough. It seemed to be something that was being talked about, and COVID sort of took away the news, really, you know, or the medical news. Um, but I still wonder if there's a lot of um, a lot of anti-science has has really developed over the last couple of years and become very public. And I wonder if that um, you being 15 years of being in science. Mm-hmm. Does that does that take you aback somewhat when you look at the uh, the response to just scientific notions and science in itself? Um, and does that change the way you kind of outlook in your book? So, what's interesting is is in the book, I think you see uh, 
a reflection of, of societal skepticism about science. Uh, you see a lot of fear mongering. You see some people who are actually uh, embracing um, the, the sort of pandemic of pandemics that, that the book uh, portrays. Um, so I, 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 think, I think everyone likes to believe that the era that they, in which they live uh, is unique. And, and obviously in many respects, uh, each era is, but it's worth noting that a lot of, a lot of these, these sort of anti-science sentiments, anti-vaccine sentiments, uh, governmental overreach sentiments, distrust, those things have been baked into um, uh, the culture for a very long time. We saw the same thing during the Spanish influenza in 1918, uh, you know, and, and not for nothing, uh, it, it raged for three years, not just one, uh, in large part because uh, you know people lacked the the full understanding of the scope of what was happening. They lacked the will to to um, you know uh, follow basic antiseptic uh, protocols. Obviously, uh, back then uh, vaccines were not as 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 big an issue. Uh, but I do think, as a scientist, one of the reasons that this book was so intriguing to me is, to be frank, there aren't a lot of scientists in my realm, the molecular biologists, the ones who toil away in the lab playing with things like nucleic acid, proteins, uh, there aren't a lot of us who are very good at communicating. Uh, you know, you see a lot of naturalists on TV, but nobody, nobody's doing the thrilling narration uh, of, of the sorts of science that go on in a lab. Uh, and I think that uh, there is an onus upon scientists to maybe, uh, prosecute their case a little better. I think scientists as a whole need to get better at explaining to people, uh, you know, what our conclusions are, but also how we got to them. We need to address concerns. We need to, you know, we need to, we need to have some sense of how the public receives our message, which makes, again, makes my book sound like it's, it's going to be uh, an academic textbook, and it's very much not. Uh, in fact, I, I think it's, it's uh, you know, the early praise that I've gotten has largely called it uh, terrifying and thrilling, uh, which I, I don't think is how many people would describe uh, molecular biology. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about the premise of the book now, so people kind of know. And I know that um, you talk about bacterial infections and the, um, the whole antibiotic resistance, and that plays a very key role in this. So let's Maybe maybe discuss that for a second. Sure, that's actually uh, you know it, it's a really fascinating area, and in fact, uh, I suspect I hope I'm not offending anybody, but I suspect all of us on on this chat are old enough to have been told: make sure you take your full uh, course of antibiotics, because if you don't, you could end up with a breakthrough infection. Uh, that was that was sort of the the received knowledge for how resistant infections came about when antibiotics first, first debuted. Uh, so for example, penicillin debuted in 1941. Penicillin resistant infections were seen as early as 1942. And so what people thought was, oh, well, that guy just skipped his last couple of doses. A couple of hardy bugs hung on and then they divided and those divided and those divided. And now this guy's got a new infection. But by the late 1950s, doctors started seeing infections that were resistant to drugs that the patient had never even been treated with before. And a terrifying truth began to take shape. 
this is where things get complicated in science, but I promise this is as much science as I'm gonna throw at you. Bacteria, like humans, are susceptible to viruses. They get sick just like we do. But the bacteria, the, the viruses that affect bacteria have this really funny habit of plucking genetic material out of one bacterium and then injecting it into the next one. They basically pick it up when they reproduce, they pop the bacteria and all the virus goes flooding all over the place. And they kind of carry little bits of genetic material every time they do that. And what's really wild about that is when they then bump into another bacterium, they can essentially introduce that genetic material exactly the same as bees cross-pollinating flowers. Now that sounds complicated, but what it means in a nutshell is that any bacterium that bumps into an antibiotic and survives has the capacity to teach any other bacteria on the planet, even those of different species, how to do the same thing. And that is really, really chilling. I think most people have this notion that antibiotics, you know, you have, you, you, you have a sore throat, you go to the doc, he gives you a course of antibiotics, you know, you go home. And, and that's really the extent of our exposure to antibiotics, but that's not the case at all. Before antibiotics, two of the biggest killers in this country were tuberculosis uh, and pneumonia. They vanished virtually overnight from the top 10 killers in the United States once antibiotics were invented. If antibiotics start to fail, those come surging back. But beyond that, you're also going to see things like uh, the risk of post-surgical infections will basically destroy modern medicine. You won't be able to uh, transplant organs anymore. You won't be able to, to uh, perform implant surgeries like hip implants or cosmetic implants. Uh, steroids, radiation, and chemotherapy are going to have to be like dramatically curtailed because they, they decimate the immune system. And this, this sounds like, you know, a thriller writer trying to come up with these creepy examples to make things sound terrifying. But in fact, I have a couple of quotes that I think are worth noting. Uh, in a 2014 World Health Organization report, uh, physician Keiji Fukuda wrote, a post-antibiotic era in which common infections and minor injuries can kill far from being an apocalyptic fantasy is instead a very real possibility for the 21st century. That was in 2014. In 2019, the CDC director said, stop referring to a coming post-antibiotic era. It's already here. You and I are living in a time when some miracle drugs no longer perform miracles and families are being ripped apart by a microscopic enemy. In a 2021 editorial for the journal Science, uh, two professors cautioned, unless researchers develop new antibiotics and therapeutics, the decimation of modern medicine will soon become a reality. And that's to say nothing of the fact that our modern factory farms are very dependent on antibiotics. They use fully 80% of the antibiotics produced, mostly prophylactically, so they can keep animals in smaller areas and keep up with demand. So if antibiotics fail on a broad scale, we lose the capacity to treat things like cancer or failing organs. We lose the capacity to raise enough livestock to support our current eating habits. We're, we're looking at losing a, a lot of fruit to blight. Uh, so you're gonna start to see mass starvation. You're gonna start to see skirmishes over scarcity. 
uh, it really is going to have these global ripples that are going to, to seismically change what the world looks like. And I think most people have no handle on, on just how serious that's going to be. In fact, the UN estimates uh, we'll see 10 million deaths per year uh, from multi-drug resistant uh, bacteria by uh, 2050. And that's to say nothing of, of things like starvation or cancer or anything like that that'll be impacted. So it's, it's a really scary new normal that we'd be facing down if this comes to pass. Well, how am I going to get my facelift? Hmm. <laughs> Isn't that the question? I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I say that as somebody who uh, is, is, and I know I sound and am uh, a giant nerd, uh, but I'm also pretty heavily tattooed. And that's another thing that's going to go away if antibiotics are no longer uh, broadly functional. Uh, is you know anything that's gonna that's gonna cause uh, open wounds like a tattoo, like a lot of piercings, uh, like cosmetic surgeries. Absolutely, uh, it'll be an interesting time, and uh, you know it, it. It in some ways will be a return to a Victorian era in terms of disease, and in other ways, uh, it'll actually be far worse because you know you couldn't hop on a plane with plague and travel around the world during its incubation period, spreading it everywhere you go. Um, that can happen in the 21st century. Right, right. So when you take something so, um, so I guess, serious mm-hmm. to, to people and something that's very possible like this, something that we're sort of in the, in the midst of, um, how are you able to explain that to them in a, in a book, in a novel, without it being too... Um, as you were saying, dry. Like, how do you incorporate stories to get people to understand the, the meaning behind it rather than just them getting infected and dying? Right. So that was actually my biggest challenge. It was like, okay, the, the, the post-antibiotic thriller is, is sort of a premise in need of a plot. Uh, and, and so for me, uh, all writing stems from character. And so I really needed to root this story in believable characters. And I had a few things that I wanted to accomplish when I sort of set out to, to, to break this book down. One of them was I did not want to have any laboratory scientists as characters in the book. I didn't want any talking heads that, you know, are just sitting there staring into a microscope uh, because I think people tune out with things like that. I wanted it to, to take place in the real world uh, as much as I could. Uh, and I do have a medical doctor as, as one of the characters who's able to, to get some of these ideas across simply. But but the, the, the story is this. The book actually takes place not as antibiotics are failing, but about four years after antibiotics have failed on a broad scale. Uh, and uh, three years after uh, a heinous bioterror attack on New York City. Uh, and one of the reasons I was so interested in that was the, the United States government does a lot of modeling of what a bioterror attack might look like. And, and the model organism they most often use is a bacteria called Yersinia pestis, Y pestis, which is responsible for, for causing uh, bubonic plague, septicemic plague, um, and pneumonic plague. And they use that as their model organism because it's very easy to cultivate and without proper treatment, it, it's quite deadly. Um, I say without proper treatment, pneumonic plague, unlike the other two, doesn't require an animal vector for transmission. 
so humans can pass it uh, to each other through 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 the air. Uh, with timely access to antibiotics, you can cure about 95% of, of pneumonic plague cases. Without antibiotics, no one with pneumonic plague will last a week. It will be 100% fatal. Uh, so in, in my world, they're still reeling uh, from an attack that happened several years ago. And as a consequence of the attack, there's actually a refugee camp in uh, um, the sheep meadow of Central Park in New York. Uh, these people who were stranded when, when the attack happened uh, and, and forced into temporary FEMA housing and then kind of became a political football because now they're there, they're living in these squalid conditions uh, where they're exposed to all kinds of nasty diseases uh, and nobody wants to let them out. And so my book is about uh, a, a murder that takes place um, a mass murder of, of a village within this encampment. Uh, and so one of the major point of view characters uh, is, a, is a cop, is a detective named Jacob Gibson. He and his partner uh, show up to investigate this murder. And what they discover fairly early on is that despite the fact that these people basically live in a tiny third world country right in the middle of New York City, not a single person who died had anything medically wrong with them. Uh, which is a, a near impossibility in the world that I've created. And then you find out that a 12-year-old boy who is one of the residents of this camp uh, managed to escape and is now on the run from whoever is responsible for this attack. And so the question becomes, how, how is it that these people managed to stay healthy? What, what does this boy know or what is he carrying with him? Or what can he do that makes him so desirable uh, to the people chasing him? And that was really my lens. I really wanted to, to focus on, on a crime. Uh, there's, there's a strong child in peril plot. Uh, it's also, there's a lot of, of socio-political uh, aspects to the novel because the boy in question, Mateo Rivas, is a mestizo child who is in the country uh, as an asylum seeker. Um, and so, you know, you have, you have a lot of power structures, um, you know, you have these, these power, power structures, you have uh, bad guys all around, some governmental, some extra governmental, all who want to get their hands um, on, on this young brown kid. Uh, and that allowed me to explore uh, a lot of thorny issues involving uh, bodily autonomy when it comes to persecuted minorities, which is something that, that I think uh, we as, as scientists and as a culture very much need to reckon with. You know, I think that just hearing you talk, you have so many different facets. I, certainly the research, even with your background, must have taken a while to do. And I'm curious sort of as the... You know, it sounds like you kind of started with an idea that the narrative developed, but what was the process like going back between crafting the, the story, the hook that's going to take us through this, and then doing all this robust research. How did you navigate that? Poorly, I think, is the answer to that. Uh, so I actually, <laughs> I, really, I really love the research aspect of the novel. And I don't just mean the, the, the big uh, questions, right. like, you know, how, how, do, how, how does multidrug resistance occur? I mean things like, you know, 
how to pick a lock or, you know, any, any, I'm, I'm just fascinated by all, all of the mechanical questions uh, that one needs to answer uh, when you sit down to write a book. So I, I have a tendency to fall down rabbit holes. And for me, it was really, it was really key to hone in on what I wanted this book to be about, uh, which was about this thrilling story of a boy being chased, a cop trying to find out what's going on uh, and then intersecting with this kid. And then he and his, his partner uh, get swept up sort of in, in these, these larger wheels that are turning. Uh, and so I really tried to keep it focused on that, but I found that in the case of this book, I couldn't do all of the research and then sit down and write it. I really had to research as I went. Uh, and, and I think that, that that tends to narrow the scope of the research that needs doing. Uh, you know, if, I, if, I, if I'm writing, I'm not somebody to, you know, not one of those writers who can put like a little description TK and then move on, hoping that I'll fill right. it in later. I, I really need to have those details down uh, to, to write the scene because I feel like they, they inform the scene. Uh, and so it was, it was for a long time, uh, a very slow, grueling process. This is by far the long, the longest I've ever taken to write a book. I think, I think before that, you know, my prior book I wrote in, in nine months, this one took five years, uh, essentially. And, uh, yeah. And I, I think I threw out, uh, more words than the book actually contains, uh, in part because I was, I was building out the world and imagining what a world would look like. Uh, you know, in which in which this this story would take place, and then I found that a lot of it, although interesting from a world building point of view, uh, didn't move the story forward. So I, I, we at Wondery, creators of Doctor Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step-by-step step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C, it's truly criminal. Cut viciously uh, because I really wanted it to motor and it really, you know, it's not even, it's not even a terribly long book. It's not a doorstop. It's, it's you know, about 350 pages. Uh, and and one hopes uh, that it moves pretty quickly, uh, but but yeah, it, it, uh, I always I always think of that maxim that easy reading is is, is hard writing, uh, and and in this case, I I don't know if it's easy reading. I suppose that's for everyone else to decide, but I can confirm that it was hard writing. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like always uh, difficulty. Uh, I mean, I do sort of a lot of historical research, but how much to put in and how much to leave out, um, you know, and and then also to what degree it informs the plot. Did you have any moments where you felt like, ah, I have to take this a different direction because of this 
detail or this information or discovery you made while researching any aspect of it? Oh, gosh, uh, so many times, in fact. In fact, the central conceit, this idea uh, that uh, the, the, the mechanism behind this widespread antibiotic resistance uh, is a virus known as the harbinger virus in the book, uh, which, which is essentially an ancient virus that affects bacteria that was trapped in the permafrost uh, in, in uh, Siberia. Uh, climate change releases it, and it begins to rapidly spread until it essentially blankets the globe, um, becoming uh, one of the most common viruses on the planet in a matter of weeks. Uh, and this particular virus is, is a real class of virus known as a super spreader, which is really, really good at taking genes from one bacterium and sticking them in another one. And I, I had some handle on how these sorts of drug resistance things happened, but I didn't really realize how dangerous it would be if one of these viruses went wide, because then it's not just a matter of these bugs have already adapted to what we have, so we better get some more drugs in the pipeline. Once something like that, once that genie is out of the bottle, they will continue to adapt so rapidly that we're, we're behind the curve and can't possibly catch up. Any drug we, we, we develop will be overrun in record time. And when I, when I fell down the rabbit hole of these super spreader viruses, uh, I found it genuinely chilling. And again, I, my, my background is in, is in molecular biology, but I, I originally, uh, before I turned to writing, wanted to be a bug hunter for the CDC, a disease detective. Uh, you know, one of the people that they would send to investigate and hopefully stop an outbreak of something like Ebola or cholera. Uh, those things don't scare me. This scared me. I had to kind of sit back and say, whoa, this is, this is worse than I thought. Uh, and so that, that was, I think, the key uh, realization early on in my process where I, where I realized, okay, that, that drives every choice from here on out. Uh, and then uh, I, I read a report, uh, a government bioterror drill report that, that basically modeled out what a Y-pestis attack would look like in uh, Denver, Colorado. And they, um, they, they did a, a digital sort of facsimile of what a, a simple aerosol device that could easily be built uh, would do for dispersal at, a, at, I believe it was at a stadium during a, during a game. Uh, and they did an analysis that I, I think ended up with between 15,000 uh, and 30,000 dead. Uh, and that, that was counting on antibiotics to, to sort of stem the tide. And so that was another one where I was like, oh, that's got to make it into the book. And then on a lighter note, uh, and this is completely true, um, penicillin was, was such a hot ticket item when it first debuted, because of course, bear in mind, this was, this was 1941, you're talking about World War II. Uh, it, was, it was in such demand that doctors were collecting the urine of American GIs so that they could readminister the penicillin that these people were secreting uh, to, to other patients. Uh, and, and yes, re-administer means exactly what you think it means. Um, uh, so, and I was like, well, that's, that's just a bizarre detail. That's got to go in the book somewhere. Um, and it ends up there's, there's a, a, a black market bazaar uh, in the book that's one of my favorite set pieces uh, in which 
a very shady character is is selling some some peculiar um, tinctures, jars of of medicine, as he would call them, um, that that are uh, taken directly from from the the no flow uh, eco toilets of of the very wealthy who have access to better drugs. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I mean, there there are so many so many peculiar and interesting things that you come across uh, when you're when you're looking into um, when you're looking into the development of antibiotics, when you're looking into just some of the some of the characters uh, that that were responsible for these studies. And we you know we tend to think of this as ancient history, but again, I'm only going back in, into the the middle of the last century. Uh, you know, we're we're still. We're, we're, we're still in a very narrow window of this remarkable era of, of antibiotics. And, and unfortunately, uh, if we're not careful, it'll be the end of that era very soon. So I, I know that you were writing this uh, a lot before the pandemic, but did that just kind of freak you out? <laughs> yeah, it, abso mean, it absolutely did. Uh, you, know, we, <laughs> you know, you know, Scientists for the longest time have been warning of this this sort of thing precisely, um, and yet it's still a bit of a shock to see it unfold in real time. Uh, absolutely, and in fact, one of the things I was kicking myself for was I had everybody in my book using disposable masks, and early in the pandemic, everybody immediately pivoted to to cloth masks, and I thought, darn, well, that's something I got wrong. Uh, and then it turns out, as as things got more communicable, we we all started going to, to more aggressive filtration masks and single use masks. Uh, so I was like, oh, okay, maybe I was right after all. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was um, disheartening. It was also dispiriting, uh, honestly, because when you're writing something this potentially scary, you really don't want to be right. I, I would have loved it if this were a terrific hook for a novel that 20 years from now proved, you know, an unnecessary warning. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, I think that when, you're, when you were speaking, I kept on thinking, oh my gosh, I can't imagine doing all this research and, and digging into all this material and then, you know, actually being faced with a pandemic. I know it's not the same situation, but still. It's not at all the same situation. And yet, you know, obviously, um, a lot of the warnings in the book about about this this threat that we don't see coming, um, you know, transposed pretty directly on on what we saw with with the coronavirus. I mean, you know, we've I think any time we narrowly avert something like this, we don't think Phew, close call. We think, oh well, we got excited about nothing. You know, it's like mm -hmm. when they predict a terrible winter storm and you get a half an inch of snow, it doesn't seem so bad. Uh, you know, but we we had dry runs of this with, with SARS, uh, and I don't mean to suggest that SARS wasn't frightening. It, it, you know, if you were if you were in the affected region, uh, it was terrifying, and it did kill. Uh, you know, I think I think in the in the high hundreds to low thousands uh, people, which is is no small loss. But unfortunately, we didn't learn the right lessons from that because you know, watching watching COVID tear across the world like wildfire was was sobering to say the least and uh and john i think i'm going to take a page out of your book now uh i think the next book i write is is going to have to be something uh at least a little historical i'm eyeing the early 80s in my case uh because uh, i'm not sure i want to predict 
uh, what the you know something something in the next couple of years will look like because we're all still trying to figure out this this new normal. And speaking of historical fiction, John, uh, I'm about 80 pages into the Savage Kind, and it is absolutely marvelous. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. it yeah, it's it's terrific. I, I have uh, for a variety of really boring businessy reasons been been stuck editing and re-editing portions of of Child Zero. Uh, for for the past few months, and so I haven't had as much time to pleasure read uh, as as I normally do. So now that I finally got the book locked, I'm I'm back with a vengeance, really really plowing into the TBR pile. And yours was very near the top. I can't wait for the summer. It's, as I teach school, I have very little time to do much extracurricular uh, reading, so I'm just trying mm-hmm. to get some time to do that. I, I hear you on that one. So how did this change you? Um, looking back at it, going through this whole five years of putting together this book and now getting it finally done and completed, um, and going through all the experiences you must have gone through to get here, um, how do you think it's changed you? I think it's changed me in a lot of ways, actually. Uh, I think, um, I mean, if you can imagine, uh, at five years, this is, you know, this is this is essentially a, a PhD thesis, or as if I, you know, wrote one paper for all of college. It was such a deep dive into one uh, one topic that I really, you know, I, I felt like a monk for a lot of it where I was just holed up doing doing this research and writing this thing. And I just kept telling people, you know, just just you wait. And I'm trying to, you know, whenever you try to explain a novel in progress, you, you sound like some crazy person trying to relate a half-remembered fever dream. Um, so I, I had this this sense that, you know, oh, I'm really on to something here. But every time I tried to tell people about it, uh, I just got these blank looks. And so it is it is fun to be a little bit vindicated um, now that we're nearing publication. I mean, I've gotten lovely feedback from uh, Lee Child, uh, called it intense, propulsive, propulsive and provocative and highly recommended. Uh, Tess Garrison called it a terrifying look at a world gone mad and the possible plagues to come. So I feel I feel vindicated in that sense that I took this deep dive uh, and and that it's to some extent uh, paying off. Uh, but I also think it was humbling to me as somebody who's throughout my career has been, I think, something of a restless storyteller. I had a, a trilogy that was sort of cross genre as my first three novels that blended fantasy and pulp crime. Uh, and then my last two novels, uh, The Killing Kind and Red Right Hand from Mulholland, uh, were hitman stories. They were about a hitman who only killed other hitmen. Uh, so for me, this was about reconciling the day job portion of, of most of my adult life uh, as, as a biologist uh, with my, my passion uh, for crime writing and, and thrillers. And so that was interesting. That was a journey. Uh, to try and figure out how to meld those two in a way uh, that, you know, hopefully uh, is is a thrilling ride for for readers who who don't care about the science. That's my goal is for people who just don't care about the science to to love this book. Uh, so that was that was you know a, a long and humbling journey. Um, but more than that, I think I suffered from uh, a case of writer's block after after Red Right Hand uh, for a number of reasons. And it took me a little while to get over that. So I think I learned a lot about myself uh, in the process of tackling that. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So that was that was a that was a powerful lesson as well to kind of start from where where I felt I was starting from nothing. Like I had I just the muse wasn't whispering in my ear, so to speak, and and I wasn't you know the stories that normally rattled around in my head had fallen silent, and then to have to build myself back up and and figure out how to do this job again. Uh, so it was uh, I think I think cathartic is an understatement when it comes to finally seeing this book uh, get some positive press. So when someone picks up the book, takes it home and reads it, what is it that you want them to take away from it? There are a number of things I'd like them to take away from it. Uh, But first and foremost, I know we've been science heavy in this interview, uh, but first and foremost, whenever I sit down to write anything, all I want to do is tell a thrilling yarn. That's it. Uh, My personal feeling is I have to compete not just uh, with with other novels for people's attention. Uh, and believe me, I do not think writing is a zero sum game. Uh, I, I love championing other writers' work and I don't mean competing in any, in any sort of um, negative sense, but I'm also clamoring for their attention uh, with their, you know, their, their phones, their social media, more streaming than you can shake a stick at. So if I'm gonna write a story and put it out into the world, I wanna, do my level best to make sure it is as engaging as humanly possible for the duration, right? I just want people to be thrilled by it. I want them to have an experience like they did back during the heyday of Michael Crichton, where maybe, just maybe, they'll learn something about a topic they knew nothing about, come away with a greater understanding, but they'll do it by going on a thrill ride. I mean, I don't think a lot of people had a great handle on uh, DNA before Jurassic Park. And if you want to teach people about DNA and cloning, dinosaurs is a great spoonful of sugar to help that medicine go down. Uh, And in my case, I don't have dinosaurs, but I do have a really thrilling story about a little kid, very smart and resourceful, but again, a little kid with, with, you know, few allies in this world being hunted by government operatives and by these extra governmental people who want to get their hands on him for their own nefarious purposes. Um, so yeah, I just I hope that I hope that they just enjoy it, and I hope it sparks questions about the the way we use antibiotics now and how we could maybe use them better. And I also, again, it's it's one of the things I touched on earlier. Uh, I think. There are a lot of unreasonable reasons why people are vaccine hesitant, for example, or, or anti-vaxxers. But scientists and public officials need to acknowledge that there are also valid reasons for certain segments of our population to be dubious about the medical establishment and authorities. Uh, I'm speaking specifically about um, people of color in this country who have time and time again, I've seen their bodily autonomy uh, violated. And I'm not only talking about, you know, historically, I mean, I'm talking as recently as, you know, 2019 or so, there was a whistleblower talking about a, a doctor uh, at, at an ICE facility who was, who was sterilizing women without their knowledge or consent. Um, uh, incarcerated people in Alabama being tested on with unproven COVID vaccines when, um, you know, the vast majority of people incarcerated in Alabama are African-American. 
despite the fact that they do not make up the majority of the Alabama population. So I do have these thorny things in there that I want people to be aware of. But if it's not wrapped up in a thrilling yarn, it's just, it, it, I wouldn't ask people to read it, and I wouldn't expect them to. Well, how did you develop your characters, like the, the, the kid that they're all trying to find, and about your, your detective, Jacob Gibson? How, how do you get into the mind enough of a character like that that isn't real, that reads as something very real? Well, I think, you know, in a lot of respects, um, I, I have the benefit of reading very widely, which is important, particularly this, this book is an incredibly diverse book in terms of its, in terms of its cast. Uh, and obviously, I would never misrepresent myself uh, to anyone uh, as a person of color. I am, I am a straight white cis male, so I'm aware that I'm writing these characters from a place of privilege. Um, and I think that, you know, you need to, uh, especially as a writer writing from a place of privilege, you need to do your research and you need to seek out firsthand accounts from, from people who have the lived experiences that you're attempting to portray. You need to read fiction by writers of color and, and underrepresented writers. Uh, one thing I found that was really handy for me because this book takes place in the near future, uh, it takes place in, in 2031, uh, I, I had this realization early on in my research that a lot of the adults in the book were, are children now or were children in the, in the aughts to teens. Uh, and so, for example, there's a, a character uh, in the book, Amira Hassan. Uh, she's uh, my, my uh, main character, Jacob Gibson's partner. Uh, she is uh, a hijabi woman who is uh, a New York City police detective. Uh, I based her in part on a, uh, a young woman who was the uh, first sworn officer of the Portland, Maine PD uh, to be from our Somali community, which we have a large Somali community. Uh, but also when I wanted to understand uh, why a young modern Muslim woman uh, would choose to wear the hijab and, and how she would approach wearing her hijab and, and what she felt that portrayed to the world, I found it really useful that there are so many uh, young, savvy hijabi women who have uh, had vlogs on YouTube about their experiences, uh, who have written extensively about them. Uh, so I, I take the research very seriously. Um, but again, I would never, I would never dare uh, suggest that it that it could make up for for lived experience. So you know, I I uh, I would hate to take up any oxygen uh, that that is is better served for for writers of color. But hmm. so now, are you into the uh, new world of doing social media? And do you have a website? How do you like people to get in contact with you? Oh gosh! So I started my career. Uh, as a writer in around 2006, which I kind of think of as the blog era. Um, so I've, I've been pretty active on, on social media and, and online since, since 06. Uh, you can find me on the web at chrisholmbooks.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at chrisfholm.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at chrisholmbooks. Uh, and uh, as far as I know, I don't have a TikTok or a Snapchat, so you know you won't see any any dance moves or anything like that from me. But um, 
but I do try and keep people entertained on Twitter as best I can. Uh, that's probably the best place to, to interact with me uh, with some regularity uh, because I'm always looking to avoid something, you know, whether it's, whether it's research or work or, or cleaning the house. Yeah. So I'm frequently on Twitter. Well, we'll get you set up on TikTok, you know. There you go. You get up there. Some dance moves. Yeah, I'll do some dance moves. You, you and John could do like a thing and hold books. And Apparently, fun. there are a lot of TikTokers that are selling books. I, yeah. I did not realize this, but my publicist told me so. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I I'm just can't do another social media. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. You know, yeah. book talk? Yeah. I I've, I've been amazed by that. My wife uh, is a is a reviewer. My wife, Katrina Needs Home, reviews uh, for a number of outlets, including Publishers Weekly. And she tends to uh, do a lot of interviews uh, within the YA realm for authors uh, as they come through, uh, as their release dates near. And one of her recent interviews, they talked about how this, this woman's backlist suddenly hit the bestseller list because somebody on BookTok had kind of latched on to one of her titles and had been promoting it. It, it essentially went viral. Uh, it's remarkable and it's an, it's an amazing tool. Uh, I think, you know, every, every writer has to decide for themselves how much social media and what social media works for them. Uh, in my case, uh, Twitter is a little more natural uh, than, than say Facebook because I like sort of the cocktail you know, party aspect of it, getting to chat with people. Uh, I wish it were maybe a little less uh, strident uh, than it is these days. Um, I am also on Instagram. I haven't figured out how to use it to sell books, but if you want to see pictures of local Maine beer and my cats, you can find me at uh, Chris Home Books on Instagram as well. Well, we'll have all that up on the website so people can find you with just one click and and get at it, you know, so... Um... Um, do you do you like this um, change of social media and and people being able to interact with you so easily? I do actually. I've had I've had overwhelmingly positive interactions on social media. Uh, I I also think you know as a as a fledgling writer, social media led me to a lot of my early credits. A lot of my my good friends. Uh, who were maybe had online magazines or were launching print magazines would just hit me up because, you know, they knew me as a short story writer at the time. I've got about 30 short stories to my name these days. Uh, and, you know, they would say, hey, I'm, I'm starting this new project. You want to write me something? Uh, and it was a great way to, to just connect uh, with, with other, other people who geek out over the same stuff I geek out over. Uh, you know, eventually, I think, I think, Eventually, anybody with a big enough audience is going to get a few trolls, and I have, uh, largely for my politics. Um, I've had people object uh, to having trans characters in my books, uh, to having queer characters in general, uh, and and that's fine. I found a great way to shut them up is to donate to, to Glad in their name. Um, <laughs> uh, they. They they stop they stop dying at you very quickly if you said thanks so much for the feedback I just made a donation in your name uh, and uh, so I, I you know um, but even that allows you to make some hay out of it and, and you know I try not to take too too strong of a political stance in my books and 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 I do hope um, that I piss off people on both sides of the aisle on occasion uh, but but there's there's no question I I, I trend progressive uh, and certainly that that has led me to a couple of uh, odd encounters on the internet. 
Oh, yeah. I've got plenty. I can share some. (laughs) Although I I will tell you, my personal belief is the nastiest messages that you will get as a writer come from the male half of an older married couple that share an email address. If you ever get an email from like Bob and Cindy at hotmail.com or whatever, (laughs) uh, you can be guaranteed that they are going to have a nasty message for you about something in your novel that they didn't care for. Um. <laughs> uh, that's a good thing to look out for. So, <laughs> Bob and Cindy. Yeah, there you go. And now I feel now I feel bad because I plucked those names out of out of the air. Or, yeah. For all I know, there's a perfectly lovely Bob and Cindy sure hotmail that are. Yeah, they're, they're going to be after you now. So, so uh, apologies, Bob yeah. and Cindy. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Well, this has been a great conversation. You uh, certainly are a very interesting person. So um, now the book we're talking about is Child Zero, and it's a novel. It's written by Chris Holm. Um, Again, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a kick. Take care, Chris. Get the latest news and opinions from Eric Shapiro from the House of Mystery website in the Shapiro Report. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.